For 26 and a half months, I was going to give up here some mushy-gushy sermon about this, that, and the other thing. Well, I've got two shells left in my shotgun, and you're going to get them both. So <laughs> you wouldn't want it any other way. Uh, after our, uh, our 2008 Leadership Summit that we had here, uh, Willow Creek uh, has been doing a extensive research in the program called Reveal, and they've been surveying churches and congregations trying to find out uh, what does an effective church do in order to help people move from inquiring about the Lord uh, to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And uh, back in the winter of 2009, they allowed us to be able to participate in this, and we sent out some uh, things to people so that uh, you could come in and do it online, and we had about 130 people fill out their, uh, the Willow Creek Reveal survey. And uh, uh, we got the results, and we've sh I've shared them with the congregation, with the elders. They've been a very much a springboard of discussion uh, in order to help us define uh, what makes an effective church. And one of the questions that they wanted to find out was this. Uh, what do people want and need from their senior pastor? And we have to be very careful because want and need, I want ice cream, but I need fruits and vegetables. And so the two food groups are very much different but you see, ladies and gentlemen, what they found out, that what the, church, the pastor, what the church wants of their senior pastor and what the church needs from their senior pastor were one and the same thing. And what is it that the church wants from their senior pastor? The church wants from their senior pastor they, that they receive a spiritual challenge. They want the pastor in a multitude of ways, starting from right here and infusing itself throughout all the ministries of the church, uh, they want the pastor to be able to coordinate and lead a ministry that actually compels them to move along in their, in their walk with Jesus. Compels you. And so uh, in, the, in an analysis of this, we began to ask ourselves, what questions uh, did the people respond to uh, that were particularly addressing this particular uh, need for spiritual challenge? And so they came up with three, uh, we came up with three questions uh, that Rillo Creek revealed to us uh, that we needed to have real good scores in in order to be uh, a spiritually challenging church. Number one, the people, uh, the senior pastor uh, provides this spiritual challenge by first of all, by providing sound doctrine rooted in biblical accuracy. So what that means is that beginning right here, at the pulpit and infused throughout all the ministries of the church, the senior pastor needs to oversee uh, the doctrinal integrity of these ministries in such a way that they are moved uh, and uh, provided by sound doctrine and biblical accuracy. The second thing was this. Uh, they need uh, challenging people to take, and, uh, take the next steps in spiritual growth. And, and from the platform, all the way through the, uh, the ABFs and all the way through uh, small groups, all the different service ministries that we have in the church, there needs to be uh, built in, in a very intentional way, a pattern that simply asks you, we're not going to make you comfortable here, we're going to ask you to, to, be, to take a next step uh, of what it means to be a closer walk with Jesus Christ. Everything needs to have that. And so the last thing is that, they, that the senior pastor model and reinforce how to grow spiritually. Now, one of the things that we do with that is very much is to be able to teach and, and, and help apply God's Word in a variety of ways throughout the ministries of the church. I know that some ministers 
uh, do not make it their pattern uh, to share personal examples uh, uh, from, the, from the platform uh, because it takes away from the focus of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and it takes the focus uh, off the cross, off the gospel, and puts it on the pastor. But ladies and gentlemen, let's be honest. Uh, we, we are also uh, people uh, that have to have a walk with Jesus on a regular basis and what we are doing is oftentimes uh, very much portrayed to the congregation, and it's, it's used as a way of being able to tell you, hey, this is not the only way, that is not the way, but it is a way in order to live as an authentic Christian. And you see, you have to understand that it's absolutely important uh, for the senior pastor to take steps to nurture and, and deepen his own relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I, I couldn't find where I heard this, so I can't quote it exactly, but it struck me to the core that a vast majority of pastors only read the Bible to prepare sermons. They don't, they don't read the Bible devotionally for themselves. And a long time ago, I realized when I was up in Canada after about year eight or nine that I was running on empty. Somebody said that pastors ought to have fuel gauges on their foreheads so that the congregation knows when they're running on empty. And I was running on empty. I came into the ministry all excited and enthused, and I had a lot of ideas and a wonderful, a wonderful enthusiastic level. Uh, but let's be honest, that only lasts so long, and then all of a sudden you realize that your spiritual tank is empty. Pastors need to nurture themselves on God's word and grow closer with Jesus daily through a devotional life that they nurture and keep protected. We need to do this. But as we do this, our lives are on display. Remember when in, in, in one of the pastoral epistles that said that give to these people a double honor. Yeah, give them the honorarium, but give them the honor. You know why it's double? Because God has said, I'm going to hold you responsible for two things. I'm going to hold you responsible for your own life and the life of your family, which you are uh, the leader. And I'm also going to hold you responsible for the church and their life. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be honest with you, that is just an awesome responsibility. It is heavy and it bears you down. And that's why you need as a pastor to be able to feed yourself constantly with God's word so that you have the inner strength. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not the office of the pastor that gives him authority. It's the word of God that he preaches and lives in his life that gives him the authority. And so, ladies and gentlemen, look at what it says here in Philippians 4, 9. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Now, why does Paul start with thinking? Because our thinking is the, is the root and, and germinates forth all behavior. Paul says if you can control your thought life, what will come out of it will be all these wonderful things. Think on these things. But look at what he says next. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or what? Seen in me. Seen in me. Put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now that's a bold man that says that if you see something that's worth emulating, take it. Run with it. You need to be able to understand that the pastor's life is under a microscope. 
And we do so when we accept that responsibility willingly, knowing that we have responsibility for this flock as well as our own family. And so when we talk about what does it mean uh, to, uh, to walk by faith, what does it mean to pursue godliness, we need to put this into a very proper perspective. And the first point of my sermon is this. Whatever you have heard, uh, 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 what is faith as a vehicle? Would you do me the honor of turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? I love this passage. Somebody once called Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Romans boiled down into its essence. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you're like me, you're in 1 Corinthians, and now you're in 2 Corinthians, and you're moving along. Oops, Galatians, we're not there yet. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Here we are. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Okay. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of us, we were by nature objects of wrath. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the way we were. We were once dead in our transgressions and our sins, we, were, we had done things that would, uh, would break God's law, and we had done things and said things and even thought things that were missing God's mark of holiness. He says that we were following the ways of the world, wrapped up in the culture, following the ways of materialism. We also followed the ruler of the kingdom of air, gratifying our, cr sinful, our cravings of our sinful nature. This is the passage where we get that expression, the world, the devil, and the flesh. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the way God saw us. This is the way God perceived us. This is the way we were in his eyes. But I love this next expression. Look at verse 4 and just marvel at this word. Marvel at this word. But. But. It's a conjunction of contradiction. It says that even though we were this way, God chose to act this way. Even though we were dead in sin and trespass, even though we followed the culture and the ways of the, of the devil and the flesh, God chose to do something, and he said this, out of his great love and because of his rich mercy, by grace, by grace he made us alive in Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. This is what Christ is, even though we didn't merit that. Grace says that he gave that to us and that's available to us because of the saving work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection uh, from the dead. That's ours. That's ours. He made that to us. And then we run into that great passage later on. and It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 2, 8 and 9 is probably one of the earliest verses that our Awana kids memorize. For it is by grace you've been saved. The grace that comes uh, uh, from the unmerited favor of God's Son dying on the cross, shedding his blood for us and resurrecting from the grave in order to give us newness of life. He's made us alive in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the whole gospel is, yes, Jesus died and paid the penalty of our sin, but the other half of the gospel is that Jesus rose for newness of life. 
We have the Spirit of God living within us. He's made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. And there'll be a time where he'll seat us in the heavenlies with Jesus and we'll be able to declare his glory for all eternity. In a nutshell, Paul has told us all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But it's important to understand, it says, this salvation was applied to us, how? By faith. By faith. And in Romans chapter 8, it says this, the sinful mind is hostile to God. And later on, it says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You know, ladies and gentlemen, before I became a Christian, I was not interested in things of God. I was not even, a matter of fact, God was the furthest thing from my mind. Something happened to me on that Tuesday in Portland, Oregon, back in 1977. Something happened where God's Holy Spirit regenerated my soul, and I was able to see myself as God saw me for the first time in my life. That's what happens. Even the gift of faith is a gift from God. Because without the Holy Spirit's intervention, I'd still be dead in sin. Faith is the vehicle whereby we accept Jesus' provi- the provision of this. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, here's the important point we have to remember. Grace is the objective, operative, instrumental cause of our salvation. God deemed all of these things uh, for us out of his unlimited mercy and grace. And faith is the subjective understanding, perceiving cause that applies it to us. And even that faith comes from God. So we begin our Christian walk with the uh, uh, trusting in God's provision, trusting in God's grace for our salvation. But ladies and gentlemen, each day that you live, each day by the grace of God that you have been able to take another breath, by each day you also live by faith. In Romans and Galatians, they quote a verse out of Habakkuk that says, the righteous shall live by faith. Each day you depend on God's mercies and his greatness and his, and his grace to be able to even exercise anything at all that resembles being a Christian. And so we have to understand uh, that what God has given us, we need to take that as good stewards, use it according to God's grace, and then send it back to him as praise. I always ask myself, what works, what works will precede me and go with me to heaven? What jewels in my crown will be there waiting for me when I get to heaven? And you know, it's nothing that I do on my own. It's nothing that God cannot tolerate anything in his presence that is done strictly by self-determination and self-will. He will not tolerate that in heaven. So what will we bring with us? So when you're in your workplace exuding the life of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And somebody comes to you and says, there's something different about you. What is it? And then you're, in the, you're doing business with God, aren't you? You've been in that situation. You and God are doing this little conversation. Oh, Lord, what am I going to do now? Help me, help me, Jesus, to be faithful to the gospel. And so rather than assuming that kind of credit on yourself, you say, well, really, you know what? I would be no different than anybody else, but a couple of years ago, I dedicated my life to Jesus Christ, and it is by his grace that I'm advancing closer to Jesus. 
And you know what? The grace that God gave you to say that, the power of the Holy Spirit that God enabled you to be able to say that, he will bring that back in fruitfulness, and that's what you bring to heaven. That what comes from God works through you and goes back to God, that's what's going to be waiting for you in jewels. D.L. Moody was brought to a saving faith by a Sunday school teacher. Now, you can imagine how many people that D.L. Moody has influenced under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to be able to influence the lives of millions of people all across the world. Do you realize that when that, that Sunday school teacher gets to heaven, that all the jewels in D.L. Moody's crown will also be in his crown? because it came through him by the power of God to be able to change the world through D.L. Moody. What if that Sunday school teacher had shut his mouth? Well, God would have worked around him, I'm sure. But nonetheless, ladies and gentlemen, the little things that you do in the name of Jesus are going to be able to count more for you because they come through Jesus and they exalt Jesus. When you get to heaven, you'll see all those crowns, the little things that God took and used in big ways for other people in their lives. That's what we'll take to heaven with us. And I'm eager to take those kind of things to heaven. It begins by trusting, and it's maintained by trusting. But let's take a look now at this other thing, as faith as a virtue. If you wouldn't mind, turn in your Bibles back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. An interesting statement there, as he instructs Timothy on how to behave. He says, have nothing to do with these godless myths and old wives' tales, but rather, instead, as a contradiction, he says, do this. Train yourself to be godly. For we know that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So what Paul says to Timothy, he says, train yourself. Now, training yourself is, uh, and he uses the physical discipline of, uh, uh, of training, uh, involves saying yes to certain things and no to certain other things. Instead of sitting down and watching TV, uh, you go out and take a, a brisk walk. Instead of sitting down and having ice cream, you have a pair. In other words, it, it, it means that there's a change in the way that you do things in order to be able to affect a change overall in your physique. I have never met a guy that's done the triathlon by doing nothing all year and then getting up there and swimming that first, that first leg uh, uh, in, the, in the water. He trains hard and he trains long and persistently. And you see, what Paul is saying is, not that the training model is faulty, there's something to be said for that, but train yourselves not in, th in things that are going to have a, 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 an eternal benefit as well as a, an earthly benefit. So he says, train yourselves. So just as, uh, just as physical training requires discipline and self-control, godliness requires us to, to train our desires and seeking the good and fleeing the evil. That's all it is, plain and simple, seeking the good and fleeing from the evil. But that requires discipline. It requires self-control. 
That's why self-control, un, un, unfortunately, self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. As much as I struggle with that, that's, probably, that's something that God is working on in my life, self-control. No, you don't need that. Eat this. Do that. Those are things that uh, fight against uh, my, my earthly desires. One author defined this as this. Godliness is the whole of the Christian existence as the vibrant interplay between what you know about God, the knowledge of God, and the observable life that emerges from this knowledge. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to be able to expand your, uh, your, your, the content of your brain when it comes to scriptures. That's not my goal here. My goal is not to present so that you know more. My goal is that you know more so that you can apply more. My goal is to have you walk out of here and say, yes, pastor, that was true. Now thank you for helping me find a way to apply it in my life. Because it's the application of the truth that will allow you to become a more godly man and woman. It's the application of that truth. And that's the Spirit's business, not mine. To convict you of your sin, to be able to empower you when you need to be able to do something proactively. That's what it's all about, godliness. Command and teach these things, he says in verse 11. Uh, don't let anyone look down on your age because you are young. And watch this, watch this. This is so critical. Every pastor must embrace this responsibility, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, some of you might think that that's an awful burden that you have to not only be responsible for yourself, but you have to also put your life on display for other people as well. But ladies and gentlemen, it is a thrill, it is a joy, and it is by God's grace that we are able to do this. We make ourselves public so that you will have some way, some understanding of what it means to be an authentic Christian in a real practical way. So that's why Paul could say, if you've heard, seen, or anything in me, put these into practice. He said this to Timothy, be, be set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. And then if you wanted to just jump over to 1 Timothy 6, this is another, uh, this, uh, the, the word uh, godliness and godly is used more, more times in the, in the pastorals than anywhere else in the New Testament. He said this in, in verse 6 of chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And in verse 11 he says this, but you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, this meaning the, the error that these errors were talking about. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And these, he talks about six cardinal virtues that are mentioned here, righteousness, and, and it means both the right standing before God and it means a, a, a moral uprightness that reflects uh, our walk with Jesus Christ. Godliness, we've already talked about. Uh, more broadly, the whole of the Christian experience uh, as a combination of faith in God and the observable ethical response to his mercy and love. That's what godliness is. Faith, love, and endurance, the exercise of faith that got us to the gospel, the love, the sacrificial service to others that aims for the very best of God in their life, and endurance, especially in the middle of hard times, it's important that this virtue is present in your life. And lastly, he ends up with gentleness. 
Gentleness is self-control, is strength under control. Gentleness is the ability to be able to restore and nurture uh, in difficult times, especially with people who are believing errors, and to be able to nurture them back towards uh, repentance and reconciliation. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is what, what Paul wants his disciple to follow. He said this, fight the good fight. He says this, keep on competing in the good contest of your own faith. He wants, he wants Timothy to be able to, uh, to be, uh, uh, exercise his own nurturing of his own faith because that's so important. Now I'm going to put these two together and I'm going to leave you with two very, very simple ideas. My parting words to you, and it's not rocket science, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know Hebrew and Greek and all these other things. All those are good things to know, but you don't have to know them in order to put this into practice. So listen carefully. Flee that which is bad and pursue that which is good. That's all. I'm done. It's not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. The love of God compels us to flee that which is evil and to pursue that which is godly. That's all there is to it. It's no secret. It's not hard. You don't have to figure it out. The whole of the message of the New Testament says that once you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, flee that which is evil and pursue that which is godly. And you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to become a godly person. Plain and simple. Not because of duty or obligation, but because you want to respond back to the very love and the mercy that God showed you in Christ, flee that which is evil, pursue that which is good. You do that, and there's no stopping you. There's no stopping you. God is going to take that, and he is going to take those efforts and make them fruitful, and you watch what happens to your spiritual crown when God takes a willing, submitted, obedience, a person who responds to his love with love, flees evil, and pursues the good, fights the good fight. And Pastor Nick's life will just shine up here, and your lives will shine out there, and man, oh man, life is good. Life is good. Let me pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would uh, honor our, our intentions. Lord, we don't desire to do this in any shape or effort on our own. It's not because we want to be uh, good works. We know that our salvation is based on grace, not on good works. That even our faith is a gift from you. But Father, your son beckons us from his throne room crucified, died, buried, resurrected, ascended in heaven in glory. He beckons us to love him, to follow him, to flee that which is evil, and to pursue that which is good. And I pray for this young pastor 
that he comes and is not intimidated by the transparency that the pastorate requires, but that he would be able to display his own life as an example, a pattern, a possibility for people who desire to become more like your son Jesus. Put your hand of blessing on him. Allow his words to be your word. Allow his heart to be your heart. Allow your sheep to be his sheep. And put your hand of blessing on High Point as they desire to see your glory magnified here in Madison and to see people come to know Jesus because they believe in the gospel and they pass the credit on to your son. And they do so by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.